Welcome to the GnomeCast, the Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we better be good, especially because Ange is here and I'm hosting, and if I'm not good, I'm going to get killed again. I'm a guest. Yes, I'm the clone this time that, you know, you heard me all die a while ago. Anyways, this episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the amazing Amito Rosa, the gracious Greg Gordon, and the jubilant Jim Anderson. Today, as I mentioned, it's me and Ange, and we're here to talk about our favorite adversaries from RPGs past and what made them so. But before we dive into the main topic, let's ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question. What is the oddest thing that has ever happened to a character of yours in a tabletop role-playing game? So, my sorcerer, Dove, is a wild magic sorcerer, which means every time she casts a spell of level one or above, we're supposed to roll on this wild magic table. And sometimes this causes things to happen. We once summoned a unicorn into the middle of our fight because that's what we rolled on the wild magic table. And then there was this huge, important battle in the middle of a chapel where we had thought we were doing this thing to summon Saint something in this particular setting um, to come and help us with this thing we were dealing with demons and all that. When we did this, though, we discovered she had actually been enslaved and chained by a demon horde. And so we opened up the gates to allow her and that demon horde to come through. So we have this huge fight in the middle of this chapel to drive them back and close this portal before they can get through. And I cast fairly large spell, probably fire, no, not fireball, because it's all ice magic with Dove, but something fairly high level and turn myself into a potted plant. Okay, then. Uh, the, the artists in my group actually drew pictures of my buddy Chris's character, Anu, pulling the large human-sized potted plant out of the middle of the fight because he was worried that something was going to happen to Dove as a potted plant. Luckily, that only lasted for like two rounds before I turned back into normal. But that was probably the oddest thing that's happened to me. But with Dove, we end up with a lot of little odd things like that, just because the wild magic stuff is... It can be obnoxious and dangerous to your friends and family, but it can also be a lot of fun. <laughs> I agree. I do love me a good little bit of chaos magic, right? <laughs> what um, about you, Chris? So... This is going to be a little weird. Uh, both of my things, the thing that we'll talk about later is also from this game. I, uh, I ran a campaign a long time ago, and we were going to run it on, on the FM Gamers, but that got killed called Spell Jammed. <laughs> so it was a long-running campaign. I was the game master, but this is going to sound weird. I had a GMPC. It didn't, I didn't intend for it to be a GMPC. They just happened to find a space hobgoblin, because if you put space in front of anything, it becomes a space thing, because, you know, it's Spell Jam, so we can do the space <laughs> opera thing. He was a mercenary from outer space, and right in the very first session, the player characters found him um, outside of a crashed partial Spelljammer spaceship, and he didn't really have anywhere to go because he was a prisoner on this ship, and now he was escaped, and they, one of the characters hired him to be his bodyguard, and uh, I was like, all right, uh, okay. So then over the course of several sessions, another one of the characters became romantically embroiled with this character, unbeknownst <laughs> to me, just started a thing, they happened to like him, and uh, I had a weird love triangle, not love triangle, it wasn't a love triangle, it was like a weird relationship triangle between the, the poor space hobgoblin named Tally, who was a mercenary who was pr very honorable and had a contract with his boss who was neutral evil. Like, this is a game where I actually ran a party where a bunch of people were opposed alignments and I made it work. It was very hard. 
you just make sure, by the way, if, if you ever want a tip, just don't give them a time to do anything else except whatever the quest, uh, the, the problems are. Just keep pushing on them. That, that'll keep them from uh, killing each other, let me tell you. And uh, the, the lawful good paladin, who was their love interest, that just organically rose out of play. So I ended up having to play Peacemaker a lot of the times with this character between these two people for like the course of a good year of gameplay. <laughs> it was uh, it was fun because I was always I was always playing it like it's five's tally because it was a character, right? And he wasn't like better than the player characters in any way or shape or form. He was just a guy with a that could shoot really well. One time they asked him to like move something. He tried to, but he's not str- that strong because he looks strong. So, but his uh, his girlfriend, the person that was in a relationship with him was the paladin who was very strong and actually picked the thing up with like one hand and moved out of his legs. And he was like, thanks, babe. I appreciate that. Because <laughs> they all looked at him and was like, what? I'm not that strong. But yeah, like there was a, and he was like, yeah, boss, whatever you need. And then the, the times, there were like four different times where it was like inner conflict between the two of them where he, he got caught in the middle of it and I had to like make that work. And that was very odd. That was a very odd experience for me, especially when this was like, like seven years ago when I, yeah, uh, when I was still trying to figure out how to do all this stuff. <laughs> There's some old Misdirected Mark episode where I talk about this called uh, the GMPC and why it's not terrible. If you go back in the archives and find that on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can you can do that. I think with the GMPC, it's all about what your intentions are for having that character in the game slash scene that the players are all in. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. But that's a whole other episode. It is. It is. All right, let's get into it. So we're here today to talk about your most memorable adversary and then all the stuff surrounding that why it made it good so Ange, who is your most memorable adversary and what what is the game and story that that it comes from so i kind of have a dilemma here because there is a difference between my adversaries that i have made for campaigns and my adversaries that i have made for one shots okay let's let's hear it i want to hear the difference okay so the difference is is with campaigns you have to be careful about how the adversary engages with the pcs if you want this to be a long-running thing because if the adversary is going directly up against the pcs i.e they're in the middle of an actual fight together and they're too powerful that can get frustrating for the pcs because you're just obnoxiously beating them up with a person they can't hurt. I agree. But if you actually have it be so that the players can win, you end up with the possibility of your big bad going down in the first time the players encounter them. Mm -hmm. The players are like, hey, we want to fight, yay, but you know that you had plans (laughs) for that NPC. And now you have to figure out what to do. Do you have an adversary in your your past that... that managed to avoid that problem and be uh, memorable? I do, I do. In my original Eberron campaign, there was an ongoing adversary called the Templar. She was actually a corrupted Templar of the Silver Flame who did not realize she was serving one of the Dalkirs instead of the actual Silver Flame. I love that story. My players never got to the point where they actually realized the Dalkir was actually behind a whole bunch of stuff, but they did interact with the Templar a few times. She was actually the first adversary they fought in the flashback of how they came to be together as a team in this mercenary company. And they actually did defeat her, but I very clearly made it like you took her prisoner and then you lost track of what happened to her after that. Mm. And then when I was starting to set things up for the campaign, I, you know, and I realized very early on that if she went up against them, 
head on too many times, she wasn't going to be an ongoing adversary because my players are smart. My players are really good players. And I didn't want to necessarily keep having to GM Fiat, my big bad, getting away. What we had happen is at least two more times in the campaign, they would get to a location to do something and find out she had gotten there before them. And they would basically get the opportunity to see her as she'd like look back at them smugly and then step away with the item that they were there to get or that type of thing. And like it worked really well because they absolutely hated her guts <laughs> and wanted to deal with her, but she always seemed to be one step ahead of them. But I'd always carefully do it in such a way that while it may seem like she got away with the thing they wanted, they'd discover that there was something she missed. Oh. And they'd get an additional piece of the puzzle or the next step for the quest they were on. It kept her as a, a viable villain that they could keep being angry at and were always worried about when was she going to show up next. I like that. So if we were to, to break that down a little bit to like, what is the sort of formula that you used? It would be, they were always one step ahead, but they always had something that they left behind that helped the player characters feel like they weren't completely out of their depths. Yes. They also got to see the results of whatever they were doing a, a lot of the times I would imagine then too, right? Yeah. And and like, I think the key was is to like have that, that touch of frustration there that they got away, but leave enough of a win there for the PCs so that they're not feeling like you're just constantly hamstringing them with this particular bad guy. I'm not as good at it as I would like to be with campaigns. I'm trying to, you know, learn how to be better. But I think she was probably the most successful adversary I've put into a campaign. Mine for campaigns, and, and we'll talk about one shots in a second, because I think that's, that's a very interesting thing. Because I don't really have a one shot adversary that I can talk about, but I think you probably do then, right? I, I have a couple. All right, cool. My, uh, my campaign one is a character called Analogous Vesti, and she was the prime antagonist of the first part, the first story arc of my Spell Jammed campaign. And she was a prisoner who crashed crash on the planet from the Spelljammer prison ship because that was like the big plot point for the first story arc was that there's a shooting star in the sky from Tale of the Comet if anybody remembers that old D&D adventure uh, that was like the uh, Barrier Peaks second edition Barrier Peaks remake uh, I think if I remember correctly I, I, it is actually I don't even have to remember correctly I know it is uh, <laughs> I, I hijacked some of these adventure ideas to create something something new so part of the ship crashed and she was on it and she was the person one of the people that led the rebellion on the ship to try to break all the prisoners out and she didn't mean to crash on the planet and she had a bunch of her lieutenants with her that helped her break out of prison essentially so her whole goal being on this backwater planet was to figure out a way to get back on the ship before it crashed so that she could do the thing that she was doing, which is con continue her escape with all the other people that she was working with, including her partner up on the ship. So as soon as she crashes, she starts doing stuff. And like Ange said, I just started leaving the remnants of what she was doing without showing who she was. So the player characters, especially with the first thing being the town that half of them were from, she rolls in there and does some stuff that is not too nice. After they find the crashed spaceship in the, in the forest, they go back to town like, oh man, this is bad. <laughs> and then they follow her to the big city where she's there making deals with the underworld, trying to gather parts together, trying to gather magic together to create a portal so that she can get back on the spaceship because there's a portal on, there's like a, a basically a magic circle portal on the spaceship too. It's more technological based and magic based, but same deal. So she's not a nice person, right? She, uh, she has lieutenants. They show up all over the place causing trouble. 
Um, there's like all these different symptoms to her plan. She cares very little for any life on this planet. So she's willing to do terrible things to get what she wants from this, the people and resources on this planet. And eventually they see her at one point in time, like you mentioned, Ange, like just for a moment before she gets away. And then they get a chance to stop her plot at the end or make a different choice to save a bunch of things that they care about in the city. So then they had that hard choice that they had to make. And they chose to save all the people instead. So she moved on into this next story arc where she was a, a problem still, but le uh, like a more of a wild card problem instead of being the, the main problem. But her portal and her moves and whatnot led them to being able to find a different spell jammer ship that was on the planet so they could actually go off into space. So that's how I do it. It's basically the same way you do it. My buddy Tristan did this really well in his campaign that my character Dove I mentioned earlier is in. And he actually, when he started the campaign, he sat down with the Conspiramid from Knights Black Agents and worked out all of these different factions in the city, who was working with who, who was beholden to who. And one of the, the big bads that we heard about very early on was a man called the Eben Cowl. Ooh, the Eben Cowl. That's a great name. The Eben Cowl, who... No one could ever tell you what he looked like because you would have a conversation with him face to face. And then the moment he walked away, his face was completely gone from your memory. That's so good. And we knew he was this underground leader who controlled all of these different factions. And so a lot of what we dealt with in the earlier parts of the campaign were fighting his henchmen, fighting his minions. And like we knew he existed. Very early on, we only had one meeting with him where he kind of showed up and we had this very tense conversation where he was kind of saying, you have one chance to back down. Mm -hmm. We were way out of our league trying to take him on at that point. So it was like trying to be, you know, play the game, so to speak. And then he's gone and we're like, ah, oh, and we start speculating. Okay, who is this guy? He knows too much. You know, and like, I, I'm still very proud of the fact that I figured <laughs> out that he had been posing as the Lord Mayor of the city as well. And in the end, when we, we finally defeated him and pulled off the Ebon Cult, which happened to be an artifact level item that would obscure his identity, we discovered that, yes, he was the Lord Mayor of the city. And then you got to jump up and be like, I knew it. I was right. <laughs> I love having some sort of organization underneath my my adversaries because they can mention the adversary. They can give hints to the adversary. They can carry out ideologies of the adversary or whatever the plans for the adversary is so that you get that sense of what they're about and what they're up to. Right. I think that's an important piece to have. I like that mine, it, it, and it sounds like most of these, they're actually villainous, right? And if we're playing a heroic fantasy game of some sort, it's good to have a villainous adversary. And I don't know if, if Gnome Stew listeners that are listening to this haven't figured it out. Me and Andrew are very much in the uh, in, in the game space of often playing heroic fantasy. Yes. Kind of our shtick, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I also do a lot of supers. I do a lot of other stuff. But ultimately, one running theme of the games that I run is I want my players to be the big damn heroes. Yeah. I do think it's important that the adversary shows up at some point. But that's like you said, it, it's tricky. You have to... I don't think you do it a lot. I think you do it once before they... In a, and even maybe give the players a chance to go after them. But if they do, they're really giving up something else. Yeah. Because then if like they split the party, then it even gets harder, right? Like to do both. This, this is a slightly different story. There was a one shot I played at Origins many years ago, which the whole scenario was supposed to be 
the players discovering that the person that hired them was a really, really bad guy and choosing to run away with the artifact they had been hired to find. But the players at the table were too stupid to run away. Like, I was literally like, guys, we need to go. We need to get out of here. The GM is throwing me plot points across the table because, like, like, listen to her. Listen to her. And, like, the players refused to leave. It was partially because the leader was played by a person who should not have been playing a leader because she just didn't have that level of intelligence to be a leader. Uh, It's like, I'm trying to be nice here. And there was another guy at the table who knew exactly what he was doing and just kept egging her on and kept saying, no, we're here to fight the bad guys. We need to go in there and fight him. And like the GM had set this all up well. We we saw a higher level, more competent group go in before us and get wiped out. This is the Oracle story. This is the you should always listen to your Oracle uh, story. Angie's character was an Oracle in this case. Yes. I was not playing in this game. I just heard about it. I was not that person that was egging them on. Just so we're all clear. <laughs> no, no, it was not Chris. It was not Chris. That's when we all died, isn't it? Yep. We had a TPK in the first 45 minutes of a four-hour session. There's a lot of interesting things that you can do in a one-shot situation for this memorable adversary thing, right? Yeah. The cool. wipe out the, the stronger party, the... I don't know. What, other, what else you got? Well, it, it, I'd like to take a moment to talk about my Tales from the Loop games. Absolutely. Because Tales from the Loop is a game where you're playing middle school kids in the 80s solving mysteries. And I have had a lot of fun creating some adversaries for that game that are obviously going to be defeated by the end of the game, but just setting them up so that the players know, I don't like this person. (laughs) Like the first one is from a scenario I have called Radio Star, which one of the, the themes of that episode is a rivalry between a local old school DJ who is uh, her name is Mama Donovan, and she's modeled after what I would have felt Janis Joplin would have been if she had actually survived her drug addiction and made it to the 80s. Yeah. You know, just like that cool, older, middle aged chick who's just like, whatever, but cool and into the music. Her rival was a local VJ running a music video channel on a public access channel named BB Bates. And I threw every single stereotypical British pop invasion trope onto this character that I could, including the mullet. Immediately, every time I have run this, and immediately when the players encounter this character, they hate him. (laughs) They hate him with every fiber of their being. To the point that when I ran this and Eric Bontz, the Weregator was playing the troublemaker in the group, he TP'd B.B. Bates's house. Oh, nice. Was B.B. Bates the bad guy? B.B. Bates was the bad guy. Okay. So is it just the British invasion stereotype that made them? No, no. He was also completely faking having a British accent. <laughs> so one of the players snuck in through the air ducts to get to the little studio where he records his VJ show and discovered that he doesn't actually play the full videos. He just introduces them and then edits it all together. And he refused to fully play Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which was that character's favorite song. Boo on that guy. The character started yelling at him from the air ducts and making it seem like he was... It was It was fantastic. <laughs> so he was fake. He was fake. That was, that was pretty much what made him despicable. It wasn't necessarily like nothing... There's absolutely nothing wrong with Britpop, I say, as the... The kid in the 80s who was obsessed with Duran Duran. Nothing wrong. (laughs) Just this guy was fake. 
So that was the thing that made him instantly dislikable. Instantly disliked. And then in the Valentine's Dance session, they have a substitute teacher who immediately sets everyone's teeth on edge because he dresses like his whole look was based on a mashup of Magnum P.I., and Don Johnson from Miami Vice. He was Tom Selleck in a Hawaiian shirt. Well, Tom Selleck wore a Hawaiian shirt in Magnum P.I. Yeah, he? it was it was the pastel Hawaiian shirt with the mustache and the pants, the two short pants and the really nice shoes. And the fact that he replaced the entire playlist for the um, school dance with Yacht Rock and Barry Manilow. Oh, so one, he looked out of place and tr- looked like he was trying too hard. And two, he destroyed all the fun music. Yes. So it's like immediately they knew he was a bad guy. They didn't know the full extent of what kind of bad guy he was, but they immediately knew this guy must be stopped. <laughs> I assume he was some sort of uh, oddness in, in the in the world, too. Oh, yes. There was more oddness. I don't want to give away the scenarios. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. And it's like with that type of thing, with that one shot, you can go a little more over the top. Because you want this bad guy to be defeated by the end of the session. You don't need them to make it through to another session. You don't need them to carry on. So you can make them as fun to punch in the face as possible. And the trick is, it's a caricature kind of of, of a character type. It sounds yes. like like when you introduce them, it's definitely bigger and, and more recognizable and stand out. And it stands out more than it would if you were running a campaign. Because you need to get that information across quickly, right? Right. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. That that makes a lot of sense. If I ran a one-shot, I suppose that, that would be what I would do. I'd probably try too hard to be subtle in my one-shot stuff, and I should not be subtle when it comes to a one-shot because you don't have a lot of time. And I will say, I have about uh, seven or eight Tales from Loop scenarios at this point that I've run at conventions, and not all of them have like a human adversary. Sometimes they have just a, this is a situation that is going on, and the kids need to figure out how to stop it. Well, that's the that's like a weirdness uh, s- scenario, right? The the Scooby Doo mystery type of thing. There's not necessarily a, always a bad guy. Sometimes it's just this weird science is getting out of hand, and you need to figure out how to stop it. Yeah, Tales. Uh, the very few times I've played it, and, and having read the book, sounds like it does that pretty well. Like you can have a couple different kinds of yeah. scenarios types, which is a, a cool thing about that game, and different adversary types. That's an interesting idea for an adversary too, like the weirdness as a memorable adversary. Kind of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. There's a giant mountain, and it's all weirdness and what whatever's going on there, and uh, how do you deal with that? Because, I mean, I don't know if that movie really has, like, a direct adversary. It's just a bunch of weirdness that is going on, right? Just a bunch of weirdness. Like, there's at least one of the scenarios I have where it's just something gets accidentally turned on, and the players need to, you know, they start experiencing the weirdness that is happening because of it, and then have to track it down to figure out how to stop it. Yeah, I never even thought of it. When I was coming up with the stuff, I never even thought about that. Like the adversary that isn't an individual, right? Like the the environment as adversary or the event as adversary. Yeah. So those are other types of adversaries that you could put in your game. And I suppose the best way to put them together would be once you have it, it's already weird. So it changes the normal. That's memorable in and of, its, in and of itself. It's how you it's how you make it memorable because it's in the way that it changes the normal. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good one. With Tales from Loop especially, it's important to juxtapose the banality of day-to-day life of being an eighth grader with the weirdness Mm -hmm. so it's like i always try and have a moment where the kids are just dealing with being an eighth grader or being uh, a kid and having to deal with family or whatever and then get into the adventure of the weirdness some of them have worked really well 
Yeah, and that can uh, that can apply to a, a bunch of different kind of games too, right? Like even monster yeah. hunting games. Monster of the week. It's about how the the horrific or the monster affects the normal. And I put normal in, in quotation marks here. The normal life of of the other people in the world. The people that don't understand that there's a monster world out there. I do think something you said earlier though is a another good point to bring back up is don't be too subtle. Yeah, don't be too subtle. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's a lesson a lot of us have to learn as GMs because it's very easy to be like, you know, have this grand plan and not want to give it away too quickly. And then it never act. This is what happened with my Templar and the corrupting Dalkir that she was inadvertently serving. They never found out about the Dalkir because it was too subtle, too far in the background. We never got to it. For the storytellers out there and the people that have studied storytelling, Joseph Campbell's The um, Hero's Journey, there's like a moment in those stories where the main characters find out a bunch of stuff about what's going on so they can actually act to do something about it. Like, don't forget that part of your game. They need information and to know what's going on so they can do something about it. You can't learn everything about game mastering from like storytelling books and whatnot, but you can learn a lot. Like, there's a lot of good stuff in there if you ever care to to really like hone your idea your storytelling craft and how to like put that into role playing. You, you have to translate some of it doesn't one for one, but there's, there's a way to do it. I'm a big proponent of if you understand the genre your game is in, you are better prepared to actually run that game to feel like that genre. A hundred percent. Is there anything else we have to say about this? Or are we good? I th- we might be good. I think we're good. All right. Well, that was fun. And, and to go along with that fun, or at least that would help us with the fun. Uh, this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You could become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link. It's on the Gnomes 2 website, and it goes right to the Gnomes 2 Patreon. There's a stew pot there. You can just drop money into it. I'd really appreciate it. And this ad is brought to you by Adversaries Are Us. It's just a store that you walk through with a cart, and you can just pick all the pieces of the adversary that you want, go to the checkout, check it out, and then assemble it as you will. Adversaries Are Us. Come buy your adversary today. Voice of Mark Hamill not included. That's true. That's true. He doesn't do the joke anymore. It hurts his throat. If you were enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many other shows on the Misdirected Mark Network. Uh, Ange, what's one that people could check out? One you can check out is Pandas Talking Games. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday, answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and talk about some games. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com. There's so many articles there. So many articles. So many. You can also find all of our releases uh, at Gnomestew on Twitter for as long as that uh, exists. And uh, the Gnomestew on Facebook, which is still there. You're, you're, if you're a mom, your grandma probably uses it. If you're, if, you're, if, you're not a, <laughs> if you're not a mom, your mom probably uses it. Also, same for, your, for, your, for the male versions of those things and the gender neutral versions of those things. They, they all exist on Facebook. <laughs> Ange, is there anything else you wanted to give a shout out to today? So I shouted this out on um, Thacko with Advantage. But I figure it's worthy of being given an, a little bit of a shout out here. The D&D movie has been delayed. Good. They cannot release the movie on the day they planned because it's D&D. They had to reschedule. Which is funny. It's absolutely hilarious. So the D&D movie starring Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, is now opening at the end of March instead of the beginning of March. And while this is probably just Hollywood shenanigans... There's a part of my soul that hopes they did it on purpose because they know their audience. That is kind of funny. My thought is that they probably needed a little more time to edit the movie. Probably. There's enough CGI in there that they may need that extra time. Actually, I would hope by now that all the special effects are done and that they're just like cutting the edits together. 
But yeah, yeah, they probably need to like re-CGI some of those things too, whatever they did for their final edit. A lot of work making movies, let me tell you. You think it the is, film it is. You, you think the filming part's the big part, but it's not. It's really the the production, the pre-production and the and the post-production, especially the editing. Yeah. All right. Well, Ange, uh, was this was it good enough? Do I have to go get turned into stew again? I think we can skip the stew plot yes. this week. Yes. Thank you. You are a benevolent leader. I appreciate it. I'm not the adversary this time.